This is Grant Oliphant, and welcome to We Can Be. This is a very special episode of our program. I'll be talking for the last time as the host of We Can Be about what it meant to create this program, why we did it, and the work of being in philanthropy in Pittsburgh. I want to share with you some reflections and some thoughts about what I believe we have all accomplished in this town together and some of the challenges that lie ahead. The podcast will continue to bring you conversations with those working to address the biggest challenges in our world, and those conversations will be guided by some of the Heinz Endowment's own resident experts in the creativity, learning, equity, sustainability, and environmental realms. And I'll continue to be a part of the We Can Be family as an audience member. And just like I hope you will, I will be listening for the second half of this season as it debuts in the coming months. As we enter our fifth year of producing this podcast, which is aimed to bring you what we've described as candid conversations about big issues of the day with some of the most accomplished, caring, and action-oriented individuals in the social change arena, I must say that there isn't a single episode that I'd change. I'm very proud of the folks we've spoken to and the conversations that we had. But over the course of 70-plus episodes, I've been lucky beyond belief to speak with an incredible range of leaders who are working like crazy to make our world a better place. Just think about Flint, Michigan water activist Dr. Monahanna Atisha or Carnegie Mellon University's AI and robotics genius Eleanor Bosch. Artist activists like Alicia Wormsley, One Hood Media's Jaziri X, Boom Concepts' D.S. Kinsel, and What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker author Damon Young. New economy leaders like Brandon Dennison and Veronica Koptis. Environmental justice figures like the NAACP's Jackie Patterson. Author and meteorology expert Michael Mann and Project Drawdown Executive Director Jonathan Foley. We have been fortunate to have had an incredible swath of remarkably smart experts in the main focus areas of the Heinz Endowments join us on this program. Some of the most recognizable faces and voices on the national stage have joined us too, including civil rights activist Dr. Cornell West, actor and Pittsburgh native David Conrad, and demographer William Fry. I've enjoyed every guest, often because of the timing of some of their recordings, the conversations took on even deeper significance. World, local, and personal events sometimes made my conversations with an already fascinating guest even more poignant, meaningful, and moving. I want to start this episode by reflecting a little bit about my experience during my 32 years here in Pittsburgh. When I moved here in 1991, after the death of my boss, U.S. Senator John Hines, I came here hopeful about living in a different part of America than Washington, D.C. I wanted to live in a real community, an authentic place, and this is where I wanted my children to be raised. But I never really imagined staying for any length of time, and yet Pittsburgh took hold of me, and I've been here now for 32 years. It's strange to think, in fact, about leaving at all. But when I arrived, that was not the case. It was not how I felt. When I came here, I often called people back in Washington, D.C. to share with them my 
concerns about Pittsburgh, which had to do with three primary things. One was a sense that the community was at least 30 years behind the times on race and that there was an embedded racism or a racial attitude here that would get in the way of the community and its future until it was forthrightly addressed. The second was that the community was 20 years behind the times on gender. And I really had the same sense that Pittsburgh had not yet come to grips with the need to include everybody in its success. So race and gender were my primary concerns and experience, but there was a third which ran even deeper. When I arrived here, what I found was a city that still spoke about itself as the city of champions, the city of steel. It spoke about itself in the past tense, and its primary hope for rebuilding its economy, the economy that had cratered so disastrously and spectacularly that it was one of the greatest collapses of an American city's economy in the history of the nation. What I saw was an attitude that Pittsburgh had to wait for someone to come along and save this place. Maybe it would be a return of steel. Maybe it would be a relocation decision of a major big company. Maybe it would be some miracle worker entrepreneur starting a great business that would suddenly employ everybody in the way that old industry had. But there was a lot of waiting and a lot of hoping and not a whole lot of change. The metaphor that came to me to represent the Pittsburgh I encountered at that time, I actually got from Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love. She tells the story of a man who every day on his way to work stops in front of the statue of his favorite saint and kneels down in front of the statue and prays, please, please, please let me win the lottery. And it goes on day after day, week after week, year after year, until finally the exasperated statue bends down, grabs him by the collar and says, please, please, please buy a ticket. The great privilege of my experience in Pittsburgh has been the ability to see this town buy a ticket. People taking agency for their own destiny and for the destiny of the town that they were in. Many people forget what Pittsburgh looked like 30 years ago. The deserted sidewalks after 5 o'clock. I remember the lack of attention being paid to rivers, the lack of attention being paid to neighborhoods. And what I've seen over the course of the past 30 years is remarkable change. And philanthropy has been immensely privileged to play a role in that. We have one of the most vibrant cultural districts in America, and it is because of the investment that philanthropy and companies and individuals and creative people have made over time to make this community a center of creativity. It was only about 25 years ago that after decades of literally telling its young people to stay away from the rivers and of thinking of its rivers as a place to dispose of waste and to transport industrial product, the city actually began to think about reclaiming that space as public space and created what is still in development as one of the grandest outdoor riverfront parks in America. 
I look at places like the August Wilson Center that was created and then recreated and preserved by the effort of people determined to first carve out a place for great African-American culture in this community, and then to see that that was continued beyond the time when it began to struggle. We've seen this community express its voice in ways that were frankly not the norm when I arrived in Pittsburgh in the 1990s. The idea of activists demanding action seemed unthinkable in the Pittsburgh of those days. The idea that our community could grow and benefit from investing in people differently by looking at early childhood seriously, thinking about our veterans as assets, investing in neighborhoods and not just downtown, or looking at the divides around race and gender and generally in terms of inequities and injustices, this community has begun to express its voice. In other words, the Pittsburgh of today buys the ticket. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. There's still so much ground to cover, but at least what people are doing in this town is taking ownership of the destiny of their own community. You know, this is what our work at the Heinz Endowments is at root all about. And it takes all kinds of different forms, many of which we've seen on, or I guess I should say heard, on this podcast. One of those forms is simply the art of speaking up, of telling the truth, of demanding publicly and openly that things need to change. I remember especially an interview I had with Sabrina Fulton on this podcast, who talked about her son, Trayvon Martin, with great pain and depth and honesty, and in that conversation underscored why she has become such a powerful voice for demanding change. I did not want to speak. I did not want to talk. I just wanted this nightmare to go away. And then when I realized that I could not bring those things back, I could not bring my son back. I just feel like I'm just doing my part. I think any mother who feels like her son was unjustly killed feels a need and feels that they should speak out. But not all mothers are able to do what I'm doing, you know. And so I not only stand for Trayvon Martin, but all the mothers that you might not know their child's name. I stand and I speak for them. That type of personal dedication and of willingness to tell a story, even if it's painful and personal, is the sort of experience that helps move others and is one form of buying a ticket. Another one is the art of building community. And we have interviewed so many people on this podcast who are engaged in doing that work. One that stands out especially for me is Tim Smith, the head of Center of Life, who is a partner for the endowments and other foundations in Hazelwood in understanding the expectations that the neighborhood has of a foundation project called Hazelwood Green, one major goal of which is to demonstrate that it is possible to have innovation-based development without displacement, and that benefits and accrues to the benefit of people in the neighborhood around it. Tim is an extraordinarily gifted person who, in his own way, speaks out all the time, but he also works at the intersection of youth opportunity and the arts and community to try and knit together 
a stronger and better future for Hazelwood. That type of work is another form of buying a ticket. Sometimes the type of ticket buying, if you will, that we see comes from the art of telling stories. Tim O'Brien appeared on this program to talk about the experience of veterans, one of several folks that we've had on the podcast to talk with us about that. But his stands out for me because he told stories through great personal pain as well and helped us understand what it was like to have been in combat, to have experienced loss the way that he has. Wars don't end when you come home. They go on and on in memory, but they also go on and on with your wife and your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children, because they suffer the consequences of war as well. A father silent at the dinner table who can't talk and won't talk about it, hides it all. The, the casualties of wars go on and on to the last widow is gone and the last child or grandchild of a veteran. They echo through history. God knows what's happened in my own case. I was 21 years old. That was 50-some years ago that Vietnam and, you know, happened to me. And here I am. And it's 2019, and I'm sitting here talking to you, and I feel it all rushing back. It's not over. So similar in such a different context with what Sabrina Fulton did. In both cases, what we learned was a little bit of empathy and a little bit, I hope, more compassion about what it was like to be someone else in our community. Perhaps the most poignant example of that during the history of this podcast came with the Tree of Life tragedy. The largest anti-Semitic attack in the history of the United States happening right here in my neighborhood of Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. More importantly for most people listening to the podcast, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, a place that became synonymous through him with compassion and caring and mutual respect, torn apart by one man's hatred and commitment to changing America through violence. But what happened here was a completely different response than perhaps he intended to provoke. And we heard from Jeff Finkelstein at the Jewish Federation, Brian Schreiber at the Jewish Community Center, talking about what it was like to be there on the ground that day and to have to begin rebuilding community in real time, right away, dealing with the pain in all its reality. Yeah, the stronger than hate symbol. There, there are a number of examples like that. The, the food being given to feed all of us on that Saturday afternoon at the JCC came from local restaurants for free. That event we put on at Soldiers and Sailors just about everything was donated. With thousands of people there, th that's the kind of thing that happened. I think we really saw it resolutely as a community the next night at the vigil. The number of clergy that participated, a standing room only crowd, people waiting in the rain outside soldiers and sailors. You can take out of incredibly painful events and you can build resilience and hope and activism and action. And I think there's a lot of beauty in there. Never, ever losing sight 
of the fact that they were part of a larger community that did care about them, that did see past the divisions. The power of the people we have spoken to to tell different stories about what is possible in Pittsburgh is overwhelming sometimes. I think of Alicia Warmsley talking with us about her artwork, reminding us we are a diverse people with simple blunt statements that some people considered too provocative to actually have displayed in public, like there will be black people in the future. And not only through the artwork, but through the reaction to the artwork, helped us better understand what we are up against in the ways in which we treat each other and how we can improve if we choose to get better. There was so much support within the Pittsburgh community that was awesome. But then you just think about like the things that are happening right now. Like, I mean, the way that people reacted to Black Lives Matter movement for black people to just claim dignity that humans should have is threatening. So let's turn our attention for a moment to what it means to be a great community, what it takes to be a community that's going to be lasting into the future. People tend to make the mistake of thinking that it's purely about economics. And certainly it's partly about that. Any community that isn't relevant economically any longer is going to be in decline. And Pittsburgh has had too painful an experience of that to be cavalier about that. We're we're not done with the need to continue to prove our economic relevance in an ever-changing global economic context. However, I believe the key to doing that is not to make the mistake of assuming that economies sit in isolation apart from the communities that they're part of. Those communities are also defined, and in fact their economies are also defined, by access to great art, to the potential for its people to be creative and engage in creative acts. It's defined by a community that cares about its environment, about whether the air is breathable and the water is drinkable, and how people can experience the quality of life in their community in a real, genuine, and safe way. And it's about, I think, fundamentally, a community that makes room in a conscious and deliberate way for everyone. You know, this is such a fundamental American notion that has suddenly become so controversial. But the word equity really just means fair. And fairness is what we, each of us, would expect for ourselves and our own children if we were entering the world afresh. So can we make communities that don't care about what the color of your skin is, what your faith is, what your ethnicity is, what your gender orientation is, but care much more so about including and making room for everyone. It's these type of things that will define our greatness in the future. One of the hardest things about bringing that about, I think, is speaking truth to power. It is hard in any community in America to challenge the conventional wisdom. It is hard to change hearts and minds. And some of that is about educating people and bringing them along and letting them see possibility. But sometimes it's about being the skunk at the garden party who calls into question what other people are believing. Sometimes it's about really declaring that the emperor has no clothes and being the one to call that out. 
I've had this experience over and over during my time in Pittsburgh. I've also seen it done better and much more courageously by many of the people we've been privileged to fund and I've been privileged to work with. But I think about this in the context of the areas in which we've worked. And I look at, for example, the common narrative about Pittsburgh's future being dependent on extracting resources from under the ground. This is actually an old story in America where communities are sold this notion that they have enormous wealth beneath their feet and all they have to do is take it out and untold riches will unfold. Well, that was the idea sold to our community well over a decade ago. And as one of our guests, Sean O'Leary, pointed out with cold, hard data, that economic narrative hasn't played out. All you have to do is walk through downtown Belair, Ohio, or Wheeling, West Virginia, or Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, and you can see that there is not an economic boom going on there. You can see that there are no jobs. You see the vacant storefronts, you see the vacant lots, you see the unpaved streets. And you could tell, you didn't have to be an economist to know. You know, I promise you, you can walk into any restaurant in Wheeling or Belair or places like that and find a dozen people who will say to you, I really wish my kids, when they're grown up and they have their families, that they could stay here, but I hope they don't. We're either going to embrace the clean energy transition to which you referred as a region, or we risk being trampled by it. I mean, we, we've already seen the movie once. We went through the 1970s and 80s and saw the collapse of the steel industry. Right now, the greatest risk that we face is that we'll continue to dig our heels in in opposition to a transition that is inevitable, not just for policy reasons, not just for climate change reasons, but the fact is that clean energy is just plain cheaper than energy from coal and even from natural gas. And there is nothing from a policy perspective that will change that. And so it means that as a region, the question that we face is, are we going to embrace this transition and benefit from it? Or are we gonna dig in our heels and try to resist it? He is repeatedly attacked by industry advocates, as is this foundation for having underwritten much of the research that has looked at the truth behind the economic claims being made here and also at some of the health implications of what is happening here. Similarly, I've seen a dynamic like this play out in the field of racial equity and of equity more broadly. It is not always easy in a town that has the history that this town does to acknowledge that racism exists. It is not always easy to challenge the community to do better. And yet, the community knows it needs to do better. And I think what a great community does is to look its problems squarely in the face, admit them, and demand to move forward with them. We're beginning to see the rise of new voices alongside old voices demanding the attention that they deserve. People like Monica Ruiz, who we've had on this program, or Sloan Davidson, both of whom are in different ways fighting to raise the profile of 
immigrants in our community and to make Pittsburgh a more welcoming place for people of all ethnicities and backgrounds, which is actually crucial to what Pittsburgh becomes next and crucial to our future. One of the things that genuinely stands in our way, one of the things that I observed when I came to Pittsburgh was that a lack of welcoming to everyone created artificial barriers for people to being here. And Pittsburgh's success ultimately, as Monica and I think Sloan and so many of the other folks that we've had on this podcast have underscored, Pittsburgh's success ultimately depends on being a city where everyone feels that they belong. Similarly, in the work of the Heinz Endowments, I've experienced this in our advocacy for democracy. Over the last five years, we've made small but significant investments in ensuring that Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh experience robust voting, that we ensure voting rights for disadvantaged and underrepresented people, that we encourage voter participation by people who are normally excluded by the process, that we redistrict districts in a way that is fair and promotes real representation and not the obscene dynamic of politicians choosing their own voters as opposed to the other way around. This work has sometimes made us the target of criticism of people who fully now accept that it is okay to disenfranchise some Americans, and democracy remains key to the work of the nonprofit community and to the work of philanthropy. You do not find a robust philanthropic or nonprofit sector in a dictatorship. And in America, what we want, I think what we all want, despite our varying political opinions, is that the fundamental notion of a robust democracy continue as core to our community and to the United States. Finally, on this score, I would say that an example of this where it has been difficult along the way is just the work of expressing moral outrage and moral leadership in general. Sometimes over the course of the past five years, now I take that back, many times over the course of the past five years, I heard from nonprofit leaders who were being told that they needed to shut up about the issues that were core to their work. And those issues might be racism and dealing forthrightly with issues of race or equality or economic equity, eliminating disparities or even the environment. All of these issues somehow over the course of the past few years were recast or an attempt was made to recast these not as core societal goods, but as partisan issues. And I would say to my last breath that they aren't partisan issues. They are what America stands for. They may be translated in different ways, and people may interpret them in different ways, and people may enact them in different ways, and therein lies the essence of our two-party structure. But the distinction was never that these issues are somehow so political that the nonprofit arena and foundations shouldn't care about them. They're actually core to the work we do. At a more community level, I think this gets us into one of the ingredients of speaking truth to power that is hard even for us in the work that we do at the endowments to completely get our arms around, and that's the role of advocates and the role of advocacy. 
people fighting for the right to protect their own environment, their own air quality, their own water quality, their own access to services, their own escape from poverty, the rights of their neighborhood not to be victimized to the benefit of the neighborhood next door. These are all things that more and more, I think, to our enormous credit as a town, we're seeing people in Pittsburgh begin to fight for. We've had, we've had multiple folks on this podcast who embody that, from Jaziriax, who has just been such a force for better understanding of and by the black community of its rights, roles, and responsibilities throughout the pandemic, to Veronica Coptis, who has done a similar thing just about the future of the economic narrative in coal country in our part of the world. The problem is our government has totally neglected these coalfield communities. And our legislators are out there in our state capital or in our national capital blindly pushing forward and denying the reality that the coal market is declining and a transition must happen. Because we've seen in history what happens when a mine abruptly shuts down. Everybody that is able to leave the town leaves. Those that are left are those that don't have the resources to get themselves out of the situation, and they struggle significantly. The school district declines, the education declines, access to food declines. And when we have those conversations with workers, they get it. Their fear is nobody's going to make that plan. And that's when they find out the Center for Coalfield Justice is trying to initiate those conversations and push the legislators. They can see where we're coming. From. People like Wasi Muhammad, who has been a force for civil rights and equity and an outspoken advocate for broad religious understanding and tolerance in our community, and was such a, an important voice in the Tree of Life tragedy. We just want to know what you need. You know, if it's more money, let us know. If it's uh, people outside your next service, you know, protecting you, let us know. We'll be there. Organizers on the ground, Engage will provide them. If you need anything at all, if you need food for the families, if you just need somebody to come to the grocery store because you don't feel safe in this city, we'll be there. And I'm sure everybody in the room would say the same thing. And I'd just like to note that that was the same offer made to me by this community when this election happened that was so negative and so the spike in hate crimes against Muslims. And then after 9-11, the same thing was made to our community. So we're just repaying the favor. So thank you for that. It's kind of like when something happens to your family member, you just have to react. It's not like it's a stranger and we want to help that stranger. We've been building these family ties for a long time. And then this is just a response because we're already so close. We wanted to make sure that everybody would remember the light and not the darkness. All the great things that happened, this horrible situation led to a beautiful response from a community. And then when I have Jewish community members come up to me today and say, what I remember about that day is you standing up on stage or what the Muslim community did or what my Muslim neighbor said to me. Lots of people cannot even remember the name of the shooter. That's what we wanted. We wanted people to remember the light, not the darkness. And sometimes these advocates make people in power uncomfortable. And I think that's okay. It is important for people in our society to feel empowered to speak up for themselves and to fight for the things that they believe in that only they can see because they're the ones experiencing it. And I think our community, struggle though we might with this, needs to become better about accommodating that as part of the narrative of the city. 
You know, what I'd like to do now is just talk briefly about the role of philanthropy in this town and in America. And at the moment, we're caught nationally in debates about what is the right role of philanthropy? You know, should foundations spend down all of their assets immediately so that it immediately benefits everyone in society? Are they elite institutions that somehow, quote unquote, need to be reined in? I think this debate is natural. And it is part of the moment, historical moment that we're in, where people across the spectrum, be they left or right, are questioning the role of institutions. Pittsburgh is a town that has been blessed by an unusual amount of philanthropic resources, where, depending on how you count it, in the top three or four cities in America for the amount of philanthropic dollars we have per capita. Had previous generations of Pittsburghers spent that money down at the time that they had the wealth, then there would have been no Pittsburgh foundations of similar size to carry this community through its lean years in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. In fact, we wouldn't have seen the rediscovery of our riverfronts. We wouldn't have seen the, the building of our cultural district. We wouldn't have seen the leadership that has been provided in building up the economic strength of our innovation industries and our universities. We wouldn't have seen the creation of an alternative economic narrative to the extraction narrative. We wouldn't have seen the deepened community conversation around the need for a broadening of economic power and of a more inclusive community because in some respects philanthropy in this town played a role in leading all of those things and it came because of money that was left to this community a long time ago. Over and over again what I've seen, however imperfectly, is our foundation step up in ways that never get attention in the national debate over philanthropy and what should happen with philanthropy. Philanthropy is a gift. It, like all parts of our society, needs to be answerable and needs to be monitored and needs to have debates about its continuing evolving role. But what it also needs to be is acknowledged as an important part, at least in communities like ours, of making sure that our community continues to evolve. When you think about government, our government can't take risks with public money because there is a price to be paid for that. Really what people want from government is roads that work, locks and dams that work, bridges that stay up, trash that gets collected, systems that seem to operate the way they should, protection of their safety and protection from national threats. But that means that government doesn't invest in innovation and it doesn't invest in risk taking and it offloads a lot of responsibility for its social mission to the private sector in the form of what we think of as nonprofits which is really the dumbest name ever for what is really a social enterprise about delivering on America's social commitments. It is about making sure that people are fed, 
that they have the types of economic and educational opportunities that they deserve, that they are equally represented, that they have an opportunity to speak and to influence decision-making that affects them, basically that they count in the ways that the country promises. Their mission is a social mission and an environmental mission and an economic mission, but it is fundamentally about doing what government can't and won't. Similarly, if you think about the role that private business plays in our society, even in the era of triple line, you know, triple bottom lines and and businesses that think of themselves as social enterprise businesses, they are still going to go rightly where their business interest lies. And that, for the most part, produces innovation in this country, and it produces progress and wealth in this country. But what you don't see business typically doing is investing its money in solving society's problems, especially at a fundamental level, at a systems level. Do businesses often find products that can change our experience of these problems? Yes. Can they even find solutions that sometimes solve aspects of them? Yes. But can they change the systems that drive the problem in the first place? Absolutely no. And that isn't their mission. It is the mission uniquely in American society of the nonprofit community and of the foundations that support it. I believe philanthropy will continue to explore these questions and to pursue its purpose. I know this institution will. Even though I'm leaving the Heinz Endowments to go to San Diego, I know that the foundation will continue to engage its grantees in conversation about what the future should look like. And that will include this podcast, We Can Be. This work for so many of us who do it ultimately is personal because we come into it out of a a, a sense of mission. And for me, that sense of purpose and mission came to me decades ago when I was working for U.S. Senator John Hines in the Senate. His abrupt, sudden, and tragic death left me, like many other people, bereft. I lost in one moment a man who was my role model, in some ways my mentor, and my boss. I suddenly had to think about what my future would be. I moved initially into a corporate job that was great, but I wasn't happy. And one of the greatest things that ever happened to me professionally was that Teresa Hines came to me and asked if I would come and work for her and her family foundations. Because what I saw was that this work is all about making a difference and trying to contribute value and really getting it right. And that came for me from the values that I saw with John Hines and that I saw over a much longer period of time through Teresa Hines, who over and over again asked the inconvenient question about what more we could do, what better we could strive for, how we could go beyond what we thought was possible. She had a knack in her leadership of this foundation of demanding that not only the staff, but the community itself 
think beyond its own limitations. So when we were going to build as a community a new convention center, she dared to ask what a world-class convention center would look like. When it was clear that we were going to redevelop our river, she dared to ask what a world-class riverfront would look like. When we were going through the question as a community about what our economic future could be, she asked the very inconvenient question of what a, a community built on sustainable principles would look like, which people frankly thought was a kind of madness at the time for a former industrial city. Fast forward years later, and what you found within a decade was that Pittsburgh was known as one of the leading cities in America for green building and green design. And today, Pittsburgh continues to see that narrative as a key to its economic future. And that came from the types of questions that Teresa Hines asked, which were really questions about thinking about a vision larger than the one we believe is possible. And then over the past few years, I've been privileged to work with Andre Hines and other members of the Hines family. And what I have seen is an ongoing commitment to asking those sorts of questions, to thinking deeply about the possibility of community, and asking ourselves questions about how we hold ourselves accountable to it. The challenge today that I see in our work all the time actually was well stated by a member of our board at one of our board meetings when we were discussing what it is that drives people. And what this individual said, what she said, was what human beings need as much as food is purpose. And as I think about the role of philanthropy and of this foundation and what I inherited from the Heinz family that is the most precious gift is a sense of purpose beyond myself in my own life, and a sense of the role of philanthropy in helping others find theirs. One of the interviews I had the privilege to do during my years as president of the Heinz Endowments, not on this podcast, was of a woman named Linda Benkin, who is a fisherman who operates out of Alaska and has done seminal work in rethinking sustainable fisheries and our relationship with the sea, in effect. She used this metaphor, which was true to her because of what she does as a profession. But what, what she was talking about is the, the feeling of being alone in a small boat on a vast sea. And I thought about that metaphor a lot then, and I've thought about it a lot since in the context of COVID and the pandemic and people struggling, I think, around our country in the wake of huge social issues and dislocations and demands for justice, for example, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and a racial awakening in our country and a recognition that we need to do things differently and that things must change. But so often, I have spoken with colleagues and friends and people we work with who in some way have expressed the same sentiment of feeling like they're alone on a vast sea, alone in a small boat on a vast sea. What I've noticed is the whole thing begins to change when they see other boats, when they begin to experience 
community coming together. And just the presence of company, the presence of fellow travelers on that vast sea makes the sea suddenly manageable and makes the task ahead of them suddenly doable. I want to thank everybody I've had the privilege of interviewing on this program and everybody I've had the privilege of working with at the Heinz Endowments and the Pittsburgh Foundation and in every other incarnation that I've had in Pittsburgh. And I especially want to thank the folks who are listening to this podcast now for being a fellow traveler, for helping me personally and our institution to not feel we're alone on a small boat in a vast sea, but we're working alongside others who care each in their own way, each with their own purpose, about finding what matters and delivering on a community that is worthy of this country and worthy of ourselves. Thank you, and I wish you nothing but greatness in the years ahead. And remember, we're not alone.